Hi guys, welcome to Art Talk with April, season three. I'm April Harris of Inked April, located in Birmingham, Alabama. We have some wonderfully inspiring artists on this season. Let's get started. Hi everyone, today on Art Talk with April, we have Rita Burkholder. So Rita. Yes. You are a visual artist. You've worked in theater and music. I even saw, you know, like you're doing paintings and glasswork and all kinds of things on your website. So how did you get started as a creative person? Okay. Um, well, I guess if we go way back, it was, I would have to say it was Deborah Fleischman, my theater teacher at AAA. Uh, which was a magnet school that was started in 1984. And my sister and I got in the first three years it was there. And so I got involved in theater. Um, she wouldn't cast me because I was too shy. So I ended up back in the room. Uh, so that was kind of cool. And then in high school, I skipped my math class to go to Ron Harris's theater class. But I would have to say that I really got into art uh, when I moved to Birmingham in 1993. So I am... Um, I lived in Oklahoma, actually, for one year, and I worked at an arts center, which was really cool. And I taught photography classes because I had darkroom experience from high school. So it was kind of cool. I could teach like soldiers and their wives and family how to use the darkroom or like how to frame art, things like that. So I would uh, I learned very, very quickly. And so I was teaching these workshops at this art center that I worked at. So from Oklahoma, I was 19. And then we moved back to Alabama. I was married at the time. Uh, we landed in Birmingham and I just kind of fell in with this group of artists on the art scene there. Uh, I started being an arts educator and teaching classes to children at arts nonprofits like Mono 09 Pod or um, Space 111 Studio by the Tracks. And then I got involved with the Magic City Arts Connection there. And they have this really wonderful children's festival that coincides with the Magic City Arts Connection mm. Festival. And so I became an arts uh, educator coordinator, which meant that it was my job <laughs> to um, find or retain artists and uh, basically herd cats and get them to like sign paperwork <laughs> to make sure they would show up to the festival and that they had all the supplies they needed. And uh, uh, I was required to like make them drive to Birmingham if they weren't from Birmingham for at <sighs> least two meetings, <laughs> which is very difficult. So that was kind of, I would say my, my arts career started out in arts education and through nonprofits uh, and going into the schools and teaching art um, through small grants through the Alabama State Council on the Arts. So I had this whole art career kind of down there that I started uh, in, I'd say, 93, 94. And then I took a workshop in lamp working, which is glass making, where we make beads on a stationary torch. So you're using this really hot 1400 degree flame. You're core forming glass around a piece of like a metal wire or a rod. Yeah. And so I taught myself, well, I learned how to do that from a workshop. I bought the equipment and then I continued to teach myself. And then within six months, uh, which this always happens with me, I got really good at it. And then I began to teach because the woman I had learned it from would not come back to Birmingham to teach anymore. So the oh, Birmingham wow. Museum of Art hired me to teach workshops. So I started a glass studio of my own. Um, it started out at this studio space called Mono 09 Pod, uh, in which I think is now like Richard Mayor Richard Arantine Drive or something like that. Um, <laughs> but it was this really cool old building that my friend had built out with lofts and stuff in it. And I would go in there and make my glass. Uh, and then I formed my own studio. Uh, we had a house in Birmingham with a two-car garage. And so I completely renovated the garage where I had a, a space for six torches. And people would drive from all over uh, Midwest, you know, East Coast, South, uh, to come take these week-long workshops with me. And then I would invite other artists in to teach workshops. So I started this studio in glass called Fresh Frozen Glass Studio. And I was mainly an artist at that point, a uh, working artist at that point. But I was still involved in these other arts education programs through these nonprofits sure. and still working with the festival. Um, that ended abruptly uh, in 2004. My husband at the time 
unfortunately, uh, I discovered that he was an addict and he was struggling with addiction. And so unfortunately, we had this very um, kind of abrupt move. Like I, I didn't, it, it was a kind of a dangerous situation. I couldn't stay in my house any longer. Wow. People were kind of like coming for him. <laughs> oh my God. Complicated drug suck. Um, I mean, crack sucks. So here's this really interesting, uh, you know, very educated person that I was married to um, that just kind of like fell off the planet somehow and it disrupted our lives. And what it meant was I couldn't stay at my house or our studio any longer. Oh man. So this incident happened in, in like 72 hours. We had to move to Huntsville because my sister and my mother were here. Yeah. So we just packed everything we could up and we moved here abruptly and I lost my studio and it was devastating. I had to quit oh. all the projects and everything that I had going on there. And I think in a way to cope with it, like that was a huge struggle. Um, losing the thing that I loved so much. It was my entire identity. I had, you know, and I, and I think this is good for other artists to hear too, because yeah. I was, I was younger. I was really concerned about my children, my children's safety, but I, I wanted my art career too, but I don't think I realized how established I was. And I think that, um, like I had this weird, like almost fame in the glass community. Like I had been in it long enough, uh, that I like created some new techniques. And I was also an educator yeah. to travel to studios to teach glass. I was teaching at Miami university in Oxford, their summer program, two weeks wow. at a time. Like I was really killing it. Yeah. Um, and, I'd say uh, so. <laughs> it was great. But then I had, when we left, um, and we, I got into a divorce situation, I was basically told that by the judge that I had to get a real job. Um, and so in order to have, in order to get custody of my children, I know this is kind of personal, but I'm, I'm glad to share it because I think other artists find themselves yeah. in hard spots and they choose against their art sometimes. Yeah. Um, and they don't have to. <laughs> But I basically canceled everything. Like I was going to Japan to um, wow. speak at a conference. I was going to Scotland. I was going to Puerto Vallarta. I was, I think I had like a half a dozen foreign countries that I was either teaching in or uh, had speaking engagement in. And I canceled all of those. And I didn't realize that it would like kill my career <laughs> to do that. I thought, well, I'll take a year off and I'll come back. But sometimes when you're an artist and you have momentum, you don't, realize it necessarily your community doesn't necessarily like key you into where you are or what your status is or you know how important you are in a specific arts community so it's kind of easy to lose track of that so I basically lost my studio and lost all of the the gigs that I had or gave up all of the gigs that I had and everything and then my uh last career was kind of in a dead zone so here I was in Huntsville in 2004. What am I doing with my life? I'm an artist. What am I doing? <laughs> so I'm working like uh, at the jazz factory two days a week, begging for more shifts. Nobody was hiring anywhere. It was really hard to get a job. <sighs> and uh, somebody told me, um, oh, you should go to the Flying Monkey Arts Center. They would probably have a studio space for you. So I went over there and I met uh, the basically the founders of the Flying Monkey Arts Center, which was Cat Shearer at the time. Um, Cheryl Carlson, Tom Moss, Beth Norwood, some really awesome creative players that really were kind of like foundational yeah. in what the world is today. Uh, but they were on Putman Drive, mm -hmm. old garage. And uh, they were like, yeah, you can have this space. And there was like a big wooden frame with a bunch of chicken wire that <laughs> Matt Bakula, who used to work at Lomel, he had stapled all this chicken wire so I'd have a safe space for my glass studio. <laughs> Glass studio was like one little folding table with my torch on it. And I was just like worried I was going to burn everything down. And in the background, uh, there was like a, a stage that had been thrown together. And there was a, a theater group called Crash Broom Bang. And yeah. they were like this weird oddball theater, abstract theater group. And so they would rehearse behind me while I was working. And then one day they came over and said, hey, do you want to come join us? I'm like, yeah. So the next thing I know, I'm like, joining this theater group <laughs> at the studio. We're in a metal building. It's like July. I'm dying. I'm just like, oh, no. idea. like, this is not what I'm used to, but keep going, keep going. Right. Yeah. So, uh, I think what changed everything for me for the better, uh, you know, cause I moved here in March, 2004 in August in 2004, the flying monkey arts center had the opportunity to move in and occupy the low mill building. 
Yeah. Jim Hudson said, Hey, I really want some people to be in there. I want it to be artistic. You guys have this art thing going on. I feel like we could work together. So we all just kind of moved over there ragtag. And before I knew it, I had an instant art family and friends. Oh, Uh, awesome. It was great. And so when we went over there, we had these like, it was almost like dog kennels, like the flying monkey (laughs) art center floor was like changing fences. And I had a big three bay studio, you know, for my glass and I was teaching workshops there. Um, But it was really hard to get people to come to what looked like an abandoned building for Mm. workshops. And they, you know, at the time they didn't necessarily feel as safe. Um, And so I had to kind of do other things. So I had this idea for a library. Uh, So I started the Burning Nun Library, which was a community library. And then that like shifted and grew. And that actually became like the library, my studio downsized. And I was inside of the library that I'd started. Um, I dated a guy at the time. He wanted in on the project. So he kind of came in. Um, and so with moving over to the low mill, it was, it was great because it was kind of like starting all over, but mm-hmm. the, I, I can't describe like what it's like to be in the beginning of something where the building was just empty. It was like pigeons and mice and like lead paint <laughs> and oh gosh. around from the factory, like conveyor belts and, um, <laughs> But there was a lot of freedom in it, you know, so we could do anything we wanted because nobody really cared. Uh, And so we did all this crazy stuff. Like we had shows and things like that. And, um, you know, the art spaces were not open to the public Mm. at that time. I don't I think it took like. I think it was like. 2007 that it actually opened up upstairs with like artist Mm. market like that. It, It took a while, you know. Yeah. I was the first artist to occupy it that made my living from art. A lot of other people were um, hobbyists or weekend artists, or they had a regular gig and they would come sure. in. So it was kind of lonely through the week. Mm. Um, but then on the weekend, all this action happened. And it was just really, I think through all I had been through and all I had lost in Birmingham, I didn't really talk about it. I think I kind of just wanted to like push it down because it was such a big loss. Yeah. But now I have this new start. Um, and so, yeah, that was really freeing. And it was it was nice to have that time to kind of create. And then I ended up just kind of, um, I ended up not doing glass anymore, actually, and just turned visual art and into music. So I taught myself how to play the accordion and the ukulele in that time. Wow. <laughs> I started writing songs. <laughs> and then I started uh, having house shows. So I had this house oh. show series called Rita's Speakeasy at my home. But musicians would come through and that was because of the monkey, because they were like, hey, this band is playing. Yeah. They don't have to stay. And I was like, they can stay with me. So they would come over and we would have like uh, jam sessions. And, you know, some of my artist friends or music friends taught me how to play ukulele and like you should write songs. And so I did. And um, <laughs> it's kind of a crazy story because I do so many things. And, and you know, yeah. we had talked about that previously. Like if I had to make a list, it would be like, OK. I'm a visual artist. I do painting, watercolors, and drawings. Um, I design logos and things like that when I feel like it. I am a costume designer and stitcher and producer and seamstress. I am a musician, a traveling musician, <laughs> a tour musician <laughs> I want to be. Um, I'm a hot glass artist. And I'm also a trained clown. So, <laughs> and, I, and I think this moves into like... Um, Okay, so that's how I started. And then I made it to Huntsville. And then I think, you know, as an artist, I for a long time I felt pressure. And a lot of times this comes from like family or friends or, you know, husbands or partners, like you need to pick one thing. You need to pick it and become an expert at it. And I think as artists, we hear this a lot. And I don't know if I'm allowed to curse or not, but I call BS on that. I think that I think that when we pick one thing and stick to it, yes, you can absolutely become a master at that. But but I feel like sometimes the passion goes out of it, uh, and not everyone is made that way. Not everyone was made to hyper focus on one thing. Um, absolutely. I mean, there, I yeah. Like, um, so you bring that up, and just recently, I. Well, not just recently, I guess like a couple months ago, I went to a Leonardo da Vinci show and it's like, he was like that. Like he was doing all, he was like inventing things and making like building things. And, but he was also this amazing painter and, you know, I mean, it's one of those things that I think 
somewhere along the way in our society, we've like, okay, if you're going to be an artist, then you've got to pick that one thing and just like drill down into it. And, and that's what you're known for. That's like your brand or your look or your feel or whatever. And it's just not, it's, it really, that's not the truth. So. Oh, it's not. I, I, you know, it's really interesting to me. I, I find that like, I feel like our culture has taken art. I feel like in America, art is not uh, appreciated or supported for for its necessity in the development of our culture. And I think because our culture is very capitalist and work oriented, that your value is tied up in the labor that you're performing or the work that you're doing. And America has this view, I think, and I find this is very much so in Huntsville, um, that like in Huntsville, everyone wants to consume art in Huntsville, Mm -hmm. but culturally, as a general rule, they want to consume it for free because it has been free or cheap for so long. Um, But the problem with that is that you lose a large percentage of people that would be creating art because they cannot make a living from it. Mm -hmm. So you're actually destroying the art community by not respecting it as a, as a job in and of itself. And I think the culture treats art as play. So as artists, I think what has happened is there's pressure on us to focus on one thing and become really good at it and become a master because what's happening is that the societal view of an artist is they're trying to merge it with the view of how labor is performed, right? So you have a job in a carpentry shop or you have a job at a car dealership or or whatever it is, or you're part of defense or something like that. And you're in that job for 20 years and then you retire, right? Yeah. So I think that people treat art that way. I think also it's kind of like a weird backhanded punishment. Like, okay, fine. If you're going to be an artist, you better show us that you're dedicated and you can do this one thing and you can do it really well. Otherwise um, it isn't fair that you're doing all these things because you get to play while I have to work. So it's, I don't know. I really do think that, that there is a lot of pressure put on artists to just kind of like conform. Yeah, absolutely. How labor, how labor is seen and art is labor, but it's not. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I totally agree with what you're saying too. And I think, Actually, like, it's interesting because I feel like right now um, people are appreciating it more, getting to that place where they they can see, like, on the Internet that there are people who are making careers out of this. Like, even though, like, say you're in Huntsville, that people most people will be like well I don't really know anybody who's actually succeeding as an artist so <laughs> it's hard for them to imagine yeah. that it's that it is actually something that you could do and work hard at and be yeah. successful at you know and so but seeing it online it's kind of like oh, okay there's people out there who are doing this yeah for real like they're truly you know, making their living off of whatever it is they're doing. I mean, I've seen a lot of artists who are doing multiple things, just like you are. Yeah. And when you're, um, so to get back on that, though, when you're creating, how do you go about deciding, okay, this is going to be the medium that I'm going to use for this, or is this music, or is it, you know, how do you go about that? (laughs) No, I've tried to, like, find the rhyme or reason to it, and I, I finally realized that the type of artist that I am is project-based, so if I, okay, so for instance, um, in 2020, a lot of us were in lockdown, right, through April, I think it was yeah. April, March, March or April. I don't remember. Yeah. Um, but what I had on hand was I had old house paint, like not old house paint, but like 
if you go to the hardware store and I have the rejected paint for super cheap. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't have a lot of money. Uh, and I and I was working. Uh, and at work, we had all of these cardboard boxes. And they had these perfectly uniform cardboard inserts. So the way that this particular painting project started, the one that I'm about to hang at the Loma yeah. Arts, um, was you couldn't really go anywhere and shop. Not really. So I had to kind of use what I had on hand. And what I had is I had been collecting all of these cardboard inserts uh, from the coffee clutch where I worked. Yeah. Uh, all the same size. And then I had all of this reduced price house paint that would have just been thrown away. Yeah. Like, oh, this is great. Like all reclaimed materials. And then I kind of revisited a theme that I had done back in 2009, but it came out completely different. So I have this theme um, called meat tubes. <laughs> so I like got lost in Berlin in the rain in December one night and I, my cell phone had died and I didn't know where I was and I really had to pee. And so I'm like, in this like icy rainstorm, like ice, oh my <laughs> icy rain pellets hitting me. It's like two in the morning. I'm coming back from a friend's show. I get lost in the park somewhere, turned around. And I'm just like, at one point it was so cold. I just couldn't go any further. And wow. so I it oh against a building to take a pee because <laughs> nothing was open. And so I'm like peeing on the sidewalk up against the building, soaking wet all the way. Oh my god! And then I finally like just like walked a little further down and just like sat against the building and just started crying. Like my life sucks. What's wrong with me? Like I'm never gonna make it back. I'm I'm just gonna be homeless in Berlin now. And then I, I don't know. And then I was upset because like people would walk by me and I would ask them, "Hey, do you know where such and such street is?" And people would just ignore me. The very few people that walked by. And then I was just like we suck as humans. Like humans are awful. Like what, like, why do we even exist? And I had this weird existential crisis <laughs> on the sidewalk where I was like, uh, you know, people are just, all we are are like giant tubes of meat. <laughs> all we do is ingest and excrete and repeat. How is that good for anybody? Like that's all we do. Like all this other stuff is made up. Jobs, work, art, music, none of it matters. None of it does anything for anyone or for the planet. We're just like trying to entertain ourselves till we die. So I had this really like like, (laughs) meltdown. And then I, uh, I did make it home because one of the very nice, like African dope dealer guys from the park was like, Hey, are you okay? I was like, where is the street? And he's like, where do you live? And I was like, I know what I'm saying above the sex shop, like on such and such street. And he was like, oh, I didn't say that. I know where that is. <laughs> like, took me there. And so when I got home, I had this idea of these little meat tubes and I just drew one out. Right. And yeah. uh, I think they were called, they were kind of like hollow caterpillars with like astronaut helmets. Yeah. On. It weird. It was very weird. Um, <laughs> so during the pandemic, I kind of got sad, like, People are not careful with one another. People are not willing to even just like wear a thin mat. Like, <laughs> like people would really, people are more willing to have multiple people die just so they can argue about something, you know, like, like this is crazy. Like that we, like, it's crazy that the world has gotten this far. And so I kind of got a little sad and I revisited that theme, but I changed it. And so I had these materials on hand. And then I just did this project. And so for like months and months and months, all I did was paint on cardboard wow. and like little panels that I had. Um, and then that turned into um, like the pandemic went right into Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, everybody was going out of their minds. Everybody was staying at home. But the one thing I could do was be supportive of these protests and document Absolutely, them. yeah. So I also do photography. Uh, so I began to take, I just took my camera down and I decided to remain neutral at the protests. And so I was just documenting and then like, yeah. um, you know, turning those photographs into the ACLU and uh, um, like, I'm about to turn all of them in sometime this year to the Civil Rights Museum. Oh, wow. I have all of that. But uh, it was a really fascinating situation because you were outside. So you didn't have to wear a mask necessarily, although I did. <laughs> um, and then I noticed like, so, so being a project-based artist, yeah, ideas come to me in weird ways. So with the movement, what I noticed was an inconsistency visually. And I thought, 
you know, for the city council and for other people to take this seriously, mm -hmm. it needs a look like it really needs a cohesive look like it's organized. Yeah. Uh, and so my friend and I would just spend hours and hours every day, pull as much cardboard as we could, and we would just paint all of these protest signs. And so everything had a cohesive look. And then and then I would give them to her. Yeah. And we would go down to the park when everybody met for the marches and she would pass the signs out. Uh, to anybody that wanted to sign. Yeah. The only problem was they were so cool looking that people would take <laughs> them home and keep them. <laughs> not, not bring them back and reuse them. Free right? art. <laughs> I mean, basically. And so it was really, it was, really cool. it was like Black Lives Matter with like the power, you know, power fist with large lettering. And yeah. Like pop art looking, primary colors, things like that. Lots of layers. There was like primitive art background style. Cause I was like, this is a, this is a movement of the people. This is a folk movement. Like it, yeah. it needs to look handmade, but cohesive and it needs to have a look. And I think that in that way, artistically, I was able to contribute to this very important necessary cause. Right. Absolutely. Um, and what else were you going to do? It was a pandemic. You couldn't go out, you couldn't go to bars. You couldn't, you know, so we just literally, I worked, I painted, I marched and photographed, like, <laughs> and so that, yeah. So I would say I'm a project-based artist, but the the ideas come around in the weirdest ways, and yeah. I'm never quite sure what's going to hit me. Yeah. Um, but if I get a strong feeling about it, I go with it. Um, I'm currently in the middle of a project that is somewhat political because I do. Me personally, I don't. Some people feel that if you're an artist, you have an obligation to get involved politically or socioculturally. I don't believe that. I think it's okay to be an artist and literally just make something beautiful um, or just make something because that is who you are as a person. You have to produce or make something. But I personally have projects that have some kind of political commentary or sociocultural commentary, you know, like meat yeah. tubes. Like, <laughs> like what is humanity yeah. actually worth? Like the planet <laughs> would be fine without us, right? That's fine. That's kind of a commentary on humanity, right? Um, yeah. I'm working on a like a weird, a weird, absurd project right now that has to do with bananas and protests. So uh, that <laughs> will come out this year. <laughs> Maybe that's another interview. Oh, um, so cool. Like, I love yeah, that just you do weird. that. So like well, you're I mean, to me, it sounds like. So you're just going along living life. These things happen to you. And you experience things and you're, you know, um, having these moments where you're thinking about life and humanity and like, what does it all mean? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, then, and then something just clicks in your brain that, you know, I'm going to paint something to represent this, which I've seen the, the meat tubes on your website, which are really right. cool. Oh, thank um, you. And very original. And I think it's really, man, what a story. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the funny thing, too, is that people can see that and like that for what it is. It's very cute and very pretty and very, like, bright. Yeah, I mean, body. it is. And at first, look, you you would have no idea, no clue that that's what was behind it, right? So if someone asks, I'll tell them the story. But uh, but it's also nice for people to just see it aesthetic if if that's their aesthetic and they like it just for that. I mean, I, I feel that people are free to consume art in the way that they want or the way yeah. that they need. I don't feel compelled to tell them why it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when you think about artists all through history, though, I mean, like even when artists pass away, everyone just decides what it meant. <laughs> right. You know, like <laughs> they're not here to explain it to us, and they're like. Okay, so he or she, they were going through this in life, and we think that it means this, this, and this. <laughs> right. Well, my kids will have my diaries, so they can't yeah. get <laughs> that wrong or back it up. If I even, if I even like, you know, hit the charts in any way after I die. <laughs> um, but yeah, I th there are other things too, though. Like I am looking for work always. So, for instance, I've designed. Uh, costume looks and stitched and produced for plays in the school systems here and local theaters and things oh, like that. Wow. So there, are, there are oftentimes I'll, I feel like I've done so much for so long that I get enough regular calls that kind of key me into work. Yeah. Uh, and I do have a stable uh, like entertainment theater job. I am a union member with IOPSI local 900. 
And okay. so I'm a theater stagehand. Uh, and I also work in wardrobe and costuming with the Broadway shows when they come through town. Wow. So I'm still in the arts in that way, um, which is nice. Like finding something like that, which allows me to pick and choose my schedule, uh, can allow me to focus on a project that I have. Maybe I don't, you know, I cannot do a nine to five. It's impossible. It, mm-hmm. Nine to fives feel to me like, I don't know, like someone has like put a noose around my neck and it's like beating me around. I don't know how to, to explain yeah. it. It feels like oppression. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm willing, I mean, I will work four times as hard on an art, on an art project as I would at a typical job, uh, something that somebody would call stable or sustainable. Yeah. Um, I would literally work harder than the average bear in an average job just yeah. to do art. Um, and there are, and that's not to say there aren't things that I've loved. Like there is one passion I had was coffee, and I worked at the coffee club Twister for a long time, and um, I really, really loved that job. That's uh, there are a couple of things in my life that I feel I would have been willing to stay if the conditions yeah. were right. I could have stayed at a place for twenty years, but yeah. I have to feel passionate about it, and I also have to have some kind of ownership. And that's whether I'm like branding the look. Uh, or like the interior designer, like I did a lot of like renovations in there. I was helping with renovations with all of us. So it was nice to like have that job that I loved and I cared about it. Um, But there's also got to be like room for growth and things like that. So I feel like it's, I feel like if I'm in a place and it's just kind of steady Betty. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you. I really do. So like I'm a graphic designer by day, you know, like that's my job my career yeah and um you know went to school for graphic design and I've had very many jobs different places and what was interesting was that what what ended up mattering is that it was creative right and that I kind of had autonomy I could make decisions and grow and I had passion and purpose in it right I were in a situation where I had like a manager or supervisor or somebody who was like squelching that Uh, and suffocating it, you know, like, you know, do what I say and do it now, man, I would hate that job. It didn't matter if it was super creative and I loved making the things. If all of that was in the background and they wouldn't let me have ideas or some kind of, passion about it you know then it right was, absolutely oh it's it's, it's terrible <laughs> I think I think too in those jobs I'm always curious I should start asking my friends and people I know this like okay what's a job that you loved that you left and what was the last straw you know because I'm always curious to know what motivates people to move on from something like when they feel it's time and you know I have enough negative self-talk I don't need this I'll just <laughs> make art and talk negatively to myself for free like like yeah. And I think a lot of like businesses like that, and I don't know if it's the South. I feel like it is the South having worked other places, but I mean, there is something to kind of that industrial mindset where it's almost like all jobs are like factory sort of way of way of working, like you clock in, you need to work constantly. And then yeah like how dare you be a minute late from lunch break or something you know I mean it's just you know people can be so obsessive over what they're getting out of their people that they forget that they're people that they're human beings and they're going through terrible things and they need a little bit of grace and understanding while they're Try, just trying to understand what's happening in the world, you know? Right. It's crazy. I agree with you. I think too, like, like what you just said also brings up a really interesting subject for me. Like over the years, I've had a lot of pressure. You know, you talk about as an artist, what are, what are your regrets? What do you struggle with? What are you like, for instance, what is something that I can pass on that I've learned through experience to yeah. other artists that are questioning what they're doing or how to go about it? And I can say that like, for as much stress and fear of instability that I've had through 
normal jobs, I guess you yeah. could say, right? Um, over the years, I have allowed myself to stop my art, give up studios. I've had boyfriends and husbands tell me, you know, you should pull out of the low mill. You know, they're not serving you. And, you know, you're, you're like, what are you getting out of that over there? Like, you're, you know, nobody respects you or whatever. Like, you should come home and work on that or you should get a regular job or, you, you know, you should stick with this job because it's stable. You shouldn't be making art. It's unstable for you. Yeah. You've got children and that's kind of irresponsible to be making art the whole time. Like, what example are you giving to them? Um, I've had a lot of criticism leveled at me by partners, family, friends parents um well you know you're struggling but yeah i think you should get a regular job the interesting thing to me is that my mental health has never been more unstable than when i was in a regular job where i was treated like a commodity that was there to yeah. earn profit for the owner there was a lot of criticism and ridicule it's very strict and it's very rigid and when i finally sat down and did the math i realized that i would make the same amount of money making art and being in the field of arts uh, than I did working these like regular jobs <laughs> and then I'm a lot happier and I had more time for my children. I had more freedom for myself. Um, and I think too, a lot of people wait for their art careers because they have children. Well, when they get a little older, when they get a little older, a lot of times we have a tendency to put things off and as, as an artist, I think my biggest failing was, closing a studio or stopping an art project or one husband didn't want me to tour with my music. I'll miss you. I don't want you to go, you know, like, like I never get to see you. And so I stopped touring like the, my last marriage, that relationship is about nine years. And I really probably produced about 25% of the art and music that I had been up to that point for someone else's comfort. So as an artist, I would say, think about it. Think about it in the long term, okay? You look at really amazing creative artists like Connie Ulrich. She's a jeweler that's based here in Huntsville. Um, jewelry designer. She's fantastic. Guadalupe Robinson is this beautiful, beautiful um, pottery artist. She's over at the Low Mill. Those persons are really big in my mind because they never stopped making art. And even when it was hard, they continued, right? Yeah. Uh, I would make art for a good period of time get some criticism kind of from people that were close to me. I think it was added pressure because I had children. I was a single mother, like you should be responsible. And I would put my art down and pick up responsibility according to these other people's idea of what responsibility looked like. Mm -hmm. People who were not artists. Yeah. And I have had, I don't know, like a, like a 30 year career in the arts that I have constantly interrupted because of what other people wanted. Mm -hmm. And what I would say to artists now is do not let other people dictate whether you make art or not, or how you make art. That is solely up to you. It is none of their business. Your finances are none of their business. Your process is none of their business. You do not owe it to anyone to pick one thing. If you, if you're happy making five things and you know, one of the reasons I don't get burned out on art is because I am multidisciplinary. Yeah. So, so if I, if I burn out, I do a big project and I burn myself out on painting tubes. <laughs> the next thing I'm onto bananas or I'm onto <laughs> photography or, you know, but I throw, I'm able, because of that, I'm able to completely throw myself into a project and make a full body of work with that medium and then move on to the next thing. And to me, I think that's so valuable. I think it's really important to, to realize that I can suffer as an artist and be broke and eating beans and rice and spinach <laughs> for five years. And I will gain enough momentum that that will propel me into the next 30 years. Yeah. And I see that with like Guadalupe and Connie, right? Like they, they, they kind of like toughed it out through the hard times. And now they have a whole career that is just what they do. Um, or you can stop and start and stop and start and stop and start for 30 years and then be almost 50 and freaking out and having like a psychological come apart because you didn't commit. <laughs> and you can see where if you had just committed for a little short, brief while, five years is not a long time, that you would have had a long career without interruption. So that is my bit of advice. Like, do not compromise yourself for love, for family, for what society tells you is, you know, 
responsible. Just throw that all out the window. And if you have children, don't buy into the idea that, you know, that your adult life is separate from your family life, because that's not true. And I think a lot of people cut themselves short, like not involving their children in their art, whether it's performance or whatever. Like I was part of a burlesque that I started with my friend, Sasha, Mm -hmm. this really cool posy peep show and I would bring my children to rehearsals and we were never naked or anything it was like absurdist creative clowning almost it was really cool it was very popular and my children loved that like my my children basically grew up at the low mill while I was there 2004 to 2011 Um, we called them mill rats (laughs) (laughs) and um and it was it was interesting because when I was a child I I would always say people say what do you want to do when you grow up I want to be an artist yeah. Well, don't you want children? Absolutely not. Don't you want to get married? No, I don't. You know, and I ended up doing those things because it's what other people wanted, kind of. Yeah. Um, and this is also really unpopular. Like I was in an interview on NPR once and I mentioned that I never wanted children and everybody kind of <gasps> clutched their pearls. But, <laughs> but, that's, but that's true, you know, and I love them and I adore them. But the thing that I can say is that I never excluded them from my life as an artist. And I think if you're an artist with children, a lot of artists tend to live their artist life as a private, separate, secret life, mm-hmm. kind of. And I think that does a great disservice to your children. And, and I think it's it great that I involve them in my process. And now that they're in their you know mid-20s, they look back on it and they love it and they wouldn't have had it any other way. So anything that happened at the Low Mill or in my studio, your artist, I took them with me everywhere I went. I didn't oh, get a baby. Awesome. I, didn't, I didn't have somebody watch them. They just, they were just part of my life in all yeah. of it. Yeah. So I would suggest that too. And incorporate your children. Don't, and don't wait for your kids to get older to make art because you'll never do it. <laughs> I mean, I, I've, I've spoken to some artists who didn't really get started until after their kids left the house and they're empty nesters or they're retired from some other career, you know, and I think that works for some people. uh, Yeah, for sure. But at the same time, like what you were saying, I feel like as like, I'm a mom, I have a seven-year-old and a three-year-old right now. (laughs) So (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Lots, lots of fun. And I'm, you know, that's one of the reasons I'm looking around my art studio and I'm like, okay, okay, who got into this box? You know, <laughs> like, why, is the, yeah. why are these pins all over the floor? I don't understand, you know. <laughs> yeah. But it's just, to me, it's such a huge part of my own life that it's just, there's no way that I could like separate it and be like, okay, when you guys go to bed, I'm going to be an artist, you know, Yeah. nighttime or whatever, you know, and try to separate the two. To me, it's just, I don't know. It just goes together. And they, children bring a whole lot of creativity to the table. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they do. I mean. I've had my children problem solve for me before. Like, I'm in the process (laughs) of making something and they're like, why don't you do that? And I'm like, oh. Yeah, (laughs) I agree with you, (laughs) man. And it's like, you know, there's some of the most um, uninhibited, creative little beings, you know, that they can just bring so much to the parents, artists, you know, their creative process and stuff like that, which I mean, I really kind of. I mean, like they'll make art on the side while I'm making something, you know, and they'll comment or ask questions and things at this point. But um, I completely agree with you on that. I mean, I think that's one of those things that I feel like a lot of mothers um, in particular have trouble, like realizing that they don't have to separate the two. And, you know, just sort of understand that yeah there's going to be messes yeah they might get into your stash of art supplies you know but you have to kind of just go with the flow and and it actually makes them better human beings to me in my in my viewpoint definitely I think I think too like you know when you're a parent and an artist them seeing that you're making art or that artist process that you spend a lot of time on 
it, there's also this thing that it, to me, it kind of like combats misogyny, which is like the woman's place is the mother and in the home. Right. And so <laughs> anything that you want to do creatively, you need to do that outside of your role as mother. And you need to find, you need to carve space out separate away from that so that you're not detracting from your main gig, which is to take care of your children. But yeah. by being an artist and including your children in that process, uh, what's interesting is they learn to respect you and your process and realize that your the time that you need to make art is just as valid as the time that everyone else has in the household to do the things that they need to do. And that art is a necessary part of what mom is or what dad is. So yeah, yeah. I think it, it teaches them to respect that as an art form also. And that way they're not seeing it as just like play or a hobby. Yeah. And I think so often artists are treated as if what I have sacrificed to make art um, is a real thing. It's not, it's not fun. It's not playtime, you know? And I think so often people think of it as play. And I think too, I'm really like waiting. I'm kind of hoping that I feel there's been a bit of an upswing in respect for art from the pandemic because we're all so shut in. So we're all like visually consuming yeah, all this yeah. interesting stuff and art and people had time to make it finally, yeah. uh, which is great. But the other side of that too is I read an article recently that said in the last 10 years, we have lost 35% of artists um, in the United States wow. because people cannot make a living at it. It is not supported as a living. It's seen as like a, a fun consumable kind of. And when people cannot pay their bills or, you know, take care of their health or things like that, because the arts are not really supported the way that they used to be, mm. that's problematic. And so I've been telling everybody, like, did you do you realize we've lost 35% of our artists? Like, <laughs> oh my God. Because if we lose art as a society, we are completely screwed. And, and we need that. Like it drives all kinds of things. Yeah, um, you know, it drives dialogue on sexuality and politics and uh, and fashion and the way that music is formed. Like, there's so many things that art is necessary for to keep our culture uh, moving forward. I think so. If we become static because we're losing artists because we're not respected or we're not we can't make a living from it. Yeah, you know, when you lose art in a society, that's when really bad things happen. Fascism, you know, like totalitarianism, <laughs> like. It's kind of scary to think about. Yeah, yeah. To me, it's such a huge part of being human, you know, to have that um, some form of creativity, you know, or craftsmanship or something, you know. And uh, when you were talking about that, and I don't, I don't mean to bring this up, but how do you feel about AI and art? Oh, interesting. And music and writing. Oh my God. It's like the robots are taking up all the, you know what I mean? I mean, yes and no. I think it's really it as a creative tool. <laughs> it's really interesting you... because the friends that I have in Europe, um, we have these discussions, right? Yeah. And it's very different than the discussion with my American friends. So with my American friends, it's we're under attack. It's a threat. They're taking something from us. We're never going to make money. And I'm like, um, excuse me, we live in America and we're artists. We're never going to make money. Just baseline before AI. Like nobody cares about <laughs> us. You know? So we're really not under any more threat than we were. <laughs> um, so that's kind of where I'm a little bit with that. But then with my European friends, they're like, oh, this is really interesting. Like this is something that can, when I'm having a hard time visualizing a project, I can actually use it as a tool to get to where I need to be in the tangible world where I'm creating a photograph or a painting. So it's almost like they're using it as a, to like structure a, pro a project. It's almost like they're using it as a skeletal form of an idea that they can't quite put together. And then they take that and they actualize it in real life without copying necessarily, but like, oh, now I have the structure for this composition or this colorway or something like that, yeah. uh, but they're not threatened by it. And I think that the, the closest analogy I can come up to can, can come up with when this question comes up with my arts friends and community is that when television came out, mm -hmm. most people were like, 
it's a flash in the pan. It's a passing fancy. Nobody's, it's too expensive. Nobody just wants to watch people live their yeah. lives. <laughs> who does that? Crazy. <laughs> who, who has time to sit down and watch other people live fake lives? Like, you know, <laughs> it's never going to last. And here we are like in the digital world with all these reality things and like TikTok, like TikTok influencers, like, oh, we're there, we're in it. And so I think to, I think there are people that are like fighting to stop it or regulate it. But the thing about technology is once it's here, it will not go away. Mm-hmm. And so you have to find a way to adapt. And, and as an artist, especially if you're making tangible goods, not digital goods, I, I can see where it affects the digital community, right? So yeah, if you're using yeah. to develop things, or if you're an animator or things, I get it. I understand that. Um, but as a person that makes tangible physical art, paintings, drawings, things like that, photography, mm. um, I don't feel threatened by it. In fact, I don't feel threatened by it because eventually the public will, will develop an eye for what AI is and what it isn't. And it will never have the value that a tangible piece of art has. And people who collect tangible, physical, tactile art will always collect that. They're not going to be swayed to AI. Um, um, so you have a show coming up. And you have a show. That low Meal. Right. It's on the third floor East Gallery. Uh, so if you ride up the elevator and you come out on the third floor, it's right there. Um, and that will be open February 8th through April 1st. Um, so please come take a look. And everything is for sale. I haven't framed anything also because I feel like framing is a very personal choice. So it allows me to keep the price down and make art affordable. Um, and one of the things that you'll notice there is I will have prices listed for pieces. But it will say things like $25 or more. So if you're a person that can afford to spend $100 on a painting, by all means, <laughs> do so. But if you can't, I've kind of marked it at the lowest price that I can still like at least be reimbursed for what I've done and materials and things yeah. like that so that no one is really priced out of it. I think it's really important that art is accessible and affordable um, and that the market isn't inflated. So that is something interesting that you'll see. So if you do find something you like and you want to buy something, you can talk to Robert Daniel or the persons at the Low Mill and have that discussion with them. Wow. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to see things on cardboard, wooden panel. A lot of it is reclaimed. I did buy some really nice German paper when I lived in Berlin this summer, this last summer. Um, so some of my um, oil pastels are on some nicer paper, but there'll be more oh, wow. like drawings available. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm so excited for you to have that going on. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited. I haven't had a gallery show in maybe five or six years. It's been a little while. Yeah. Um, so I'm really proud of that. And not, I'm not proud of that. I'm excited for that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but awesome. Well, thank, thank you, you so much, much for yeah. talking to me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Art Talk with April. For more information on this episode, join the Facebook group, The Art Lounge. Please subscribe and share. See you next Tuesday. Hope you have a great week.